Welcome to Ask the Growbot, where the concept is simple. Get experienced cannabis professionals in the same space with AI-powered ChatGPT, who we call the Growbot, and ask some questions, get some answers, and chop it up. Well, dude, I appreciate you jumping on. Um, Will and I have been sort of exploring this concept, trying to bring on experts in the field and sort of talk about combined value proposition and explore what the chat has to say. You know, what does AI have to say about cannabis and what we do and what we talk about on a daily basis? I, I think also part of the premise is it's worth mentioning how AI and ChatGPT in particular is really popular and people are diving into it but um it's important to always fact check everything and, and it's no replacement for a, an experienced cultivator uh, an expert in the field right it's it's a starting off point no i mean that's really the idea here is that yeah. i think it gets us a lot of the way there and creates prompts for us to really dive in deeper and sort of <laughs> learn how to speak the same language and cut through the fat and uh with that said let's jump into it right like hunter i'm excited that you're here uh your resume is awesome right You've been a part of MSOs from seed through extraction and can hold your own in any conversation. Um, you've got a master's in public policy. We can debate the nuances of that, but you also have a PhD in racking. You've been doing this just as long as anybody in the game. You understand the dynamics of your racking choice and how it impacts a number of different things in the space. Um, so we're really excited to, to get your feedback here on the topic of compliance. Um, I think that's where we're gonna jump in. Will's joining us, right? So Will is uh, also a director of marketing and creative tech at GrowGlide, whereas you're the VP of compliance and product. Um, it's an interesting marriage. I'm the director of nerding out on stuff, uh, cannabis related and closing the loop to financial business success. But I think Will also brings an interesting angle, right? He reminds us all that if we don't bring our A game every day, robots take our jobs and we need to make sure that uh, we still validate all that hard work that we've done to build our careers to this point. So we'll be running the Growbot, asking it some questions. Um, you and I will be nerding out, talking from some real life experiences, customer experiences, our partner experiences, and just sort of talking it through. So if you want to jump in, we'll go ahead and throw something at the Growbot along the lines right. of, you know, why is compliance so important in cannabis cultivation? All right, here we go. See what you got. Mm, interesting. The thing that jumps out to me is, go ahead, you jump in first, man. Zero conversation about diversion in this, which is honestly the main- Track and trace. Yeah, the main issue with a lot of compliance at the state level, right? So I'm seeing highly regulated, yes, we're talking about the public policy behind it. Um, it is highly regulated. I like to remind people that the regulations are actually a floor and by no means a ceiling, just because they want you to track your dry weight in, wet weight out and waste. Um, that doesn't mean that that's all you should be tracking, right? So the savvy operators out there tracking and reporting a myriad of things beyond what is required just by the state. So that's one of my first things I like to tell people, um, especially when we're talking about compliance, is these these regulations aren't all that stringent, as crazy as they are, you know? 
And I think when I first hear compliance, right, I think about legal stuff, track and trace, rules and regulations that give us a baseline for interacting as a business. But then I also think about like compliance internally to SOPs and the practice of following guidelines and complying to the rules that a cultivator and a team put in place in order to make sure that we get consistent results, that we get predictable results, that, you know, number two, hazardous chemicals. I think all day about the fact that a cultivator might have something in a facility that shouldn't be sprayed. And if you don't follow the rules and regulations and you spray something on that plant, everything might fail, test hot, become something that's unusable, unsafe, and becomes a cancer-causing agent versus a cancer-curing agent. So to me, there's that internal compliance, which is a little bit different than the external compliance. Um, And then you know, compliance from a safety perspective. You and I yep. talk about this a lot, right? The racking rules and regulations that allow the people working in this facility to be safe. And maybe you can speak a little bit to that on, you know, just when we think about multi-tiers environments, or do we need repelling harnesses? Do we need to clip in? What are some things that we've put in place to make sure people are safe on our racks or people should be considering as a whole from a health and safety perspective? Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Operational workforce safety, OSHA, and kind of that like safety and operational procedures and equipment hardware. Um, that is a massive part of indoor cultivation because we're growing in controlled environment agriculture, growth chambers. We are supplementing the air with CO2 and conditioning it with other potentially hazardous things, ozone, ionizers, et cetera, um, you have to be wary about the environment um, and the equipment you're on. So there's a lot of safety and training there. And then even beyond that, there's like consumer product safety, which is to me potentially one of the biggest things that we've had to push back on in the industry. Um, particularly with, we'll call them legacy cultivators and operators that are coming from more of, uh, let's say, what the rules? farmer's market yeah, model. And, you know, I always have this conversation with them. Um, we used to call them in the lobbying space, non-strategic vocal activists uh, as our euphemism, which was <laughs> a term I use a lot these days. Um, but you know, it's all great if you want to grow tomatoes in your backyard, right? You want to give your tomatoes to your friends, your family, your colleagues, like, awesome, like, go do that. You want to take your uh, tomatoes to the farmer's market. Okay. Well, now, if you're going to claim that it's organic, you need a third party certification, you might have some sort of food safety standards imposed just by the farmer's market itself. And then let's say you want to take the next step and you want to sell the Safeway or some other big box grocery store. Well, now we're really talking about it. We're talking about food miles. We're talking about uh, food safety and shelf lives. We're talking about um, people dying because of listeria on cucumbers, you know, like that's real. And the cannabis industry isn't there from a regulatory consumer safety space that really, really bothers people like me. Um, And I'm sure you share the same uh, phobia. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you nailed it in this transition from the legacy cultivator to the commercial cultivator slash businessman. Even when I think about facility design, I think about things that bubble up that weren't necessarily aware to us as cultivators in the past. 
CO2 safety purges, thinking about fans and filters to evacuate CO2 in these high PPM environments for human safety so we don't have people passing out. And then something that you and I deal with on a regular basis, right, whether it's Oklahoma or other states that are coming on board and we have fire safety and fire suppression to be aware of when people say, hey, I can't even use four by eight tables because now I can't use my water arrays in order to put out fires, which is exactly why we came up with slab trays to create these spaces in between in order to have a flue space for the water to come down and effectively put out a fire. Turns out there's also scientific benefit, right, to getting a bottom-up airflow to break the boundary layer and drive CO2 assimilation. But there's so many things thought about in the design period, whereas a lot of cultivators, when they went from their garage or their tent to a garage to a warehouse, didn't have to think about, you know, worker comp, didn't have to think about accessing that next tier, didn't have to think about CO2 or what was in the air, didn't have to think about fire suppression. You just let it burn and rebuild it. You might have to tear it down tomorrow anyway, so why invest all this thought policing into it? And now here we are, you know, replicating some of those failures. And I think savvy cultivators really look to other leaders in the space and say, what can I learn? What's truly enforced? What will negatively impact my brand down the line? And what can I build into right now to future-proof, to think about how I solve for today, but also how I can build on top of that for three, five years from now. And a great segue is uh, future proofing for fire safety. You know, the NFPA is actually currently meeting and hosting public comments on what they're calling chapter 420. Uh, Cause right now controlled environment agriculture is kind of a square peg in a round hole for fire safety. It doesn't quite fit archival file storage. It doesn't quite fit mobile file storage. You know, it, it, it depends on how the inspectors feel in that day. And you and I and a lot of the operators out there know an inspector can have a different opinion of one interpretation of a regulation from one day to the next. So um, you're absolutely right. Kudos to the folks that are out there. Um, honestly, future proofing their facilities with things like the slab tray, um, the fire suppression, in my opinion, uh, the fire safety issue with the slab trays is just like extra gravy on the fact that it is an amazing product and will help uh, under canopy airflow. And honestly, you'll see it in the KPIs. Yeah, and easier to clean. Make sure that your product doesn't, you know, develop mold and mildew, which again is a compliance factor that would either need remediation and uh, you know, negatively impact your bottom line from a PPF or a price per pound or a yield perspective. Um, there's a lot of things to think through when we think that compliance. I, I was recently on LinkedIn and someone was posting about real estate, you know, the the big things being location, location, locate, location. That's the most important thing. And the response from the cannabis industry was compliance, compliance, compliance. And maybe I'll kick it back to Will here to ask the Growbot, you know, what are the most important things about compliance? Is there a top three, top five, top 10, something that we can riff on a little bit on the most important aspects of compliance? Because I know Hunter and I can find some rabbit holes to run down. If, All right, if let's, see, uh, let's see what the Growbot has to say about this. I had that prompt lined up, so I'll just copy and paste it in here. Top five issues that cultivators would should consider when it comes to compliance. See what the Growbot has to say about this. You should probably have a license if you want to grow. That makes sense. Sure. You still get robbed in a legal environment. Yep. Yep. 
Still can't call the cops. <laughs> <laughs> Testing and labeling, we can unpack that. Waste management, that's a really interesting one that a lot of people don't bring up. What do you do with all that rock wool? I've always thought about like, if I was gonna start a cannabis business tomorrow, right? And I didn't have enough money to start a distribution company. I would start a waste remediation company where I had track and trace, I came in, I tagged and bagged everything. I put it through a biodigester. I pooped out compost tea for you. Lots of different ways to think about waste management, but it's an ugly, dirty thing that a lot of people don't think about. Historically, we would just take the rock wool and throw it in the field behind the spot. The easiest way to find a place to rob is to see piles of rock wool or piles of cocoa or piles of fabric pots behind a warehouse. And in today's environment, like you have to deal with that. How do you deal with it in a way that's safe and treatable and realistic? And I don't know, I'll take a shot at whatever you want, man. That's just what jumped out to me. No, that's, um, it's a great point. You know, there's so many hazardous byproducts of seemingly benign processes that we come across in the cannabis space, you know? Um, it's great that everyone's moving to reverse osmosis because of the lack of uh, standardization and homogenization in city water and well situations. Of course, that also creates a lot of hazardous waste as a result. All the salts and everything you're pulling out of that water to get to 3 ppm or whatever, you have to pay someone to haul away right like and that's just the tip of the iceberg so um it's it's interesting to consider um downstream management of the company's resources in that regard because i'm sure a lot of operators are getting caught um not having built stuff like hazardous waste removal into their operating expenses Sure. And sometimes we don't even see something as a hazard or even think of it as waste, but it's negatively impacting plant vitality or ultimate performance. I was listening to some folks talk about chlorine and chlorine accumulation in plants, right? Okay, let's add some chlorine or let's use this city water. And then all of a sudden the chlorine content in the sap analysis is like 10 to 20 X what it should be. And then you smoke that and it's a residual and it's not tested for, but it's harmful. And then the other thing that jumps out to me when we think about compliance from a licensing and regulation perspective is plant count limitations versus canopy limitations, which yep. dictate completely different ways to cultivate. And if you're not considering those things early on, you might be considering inappropriate genetics. You might not have the right airflow. You might be choosing the wrong lights to optimize your geographical licensing limitations. Absolutely. What do you got in there, Will? So I'm asking a follow-up question. I mean, we weren't specific about indoor vertical farming, so I want to specify that, see if the answers are any different or if it adds to it. Should add to it. All right. IPM, yeah. We haven't even talked about IPM compliance. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, like, so I, one of the ways I made my name in the early stages of being a consultant was that transition from, you can't use Avid anymore. You can't use Fluoromite anymore. You can't use systemic banned substances because they're awful for people. And what are you going to do? Because you've leaned on them historically. And there wasn't the 
the knowledge bridge between engineers and HVAC and airflow and how to use those tools to appropriately control temperature and humidity and plant leaf temperature and use VPD as a tool. So you would just spray these products and get to the finish line. And in today's race, you can't spray those products. So you really need to understand the mechanical solutions. And that brings me back to closing that loop on cultivators and engineers and entrepreneurs all saying different words, but trying to get to the same goal, speaking a different <laughs> language. It's a real challenge, you know, a lot of and compliance is a big part of it. Which rules do we follow? Which rules do we break? Which rules can we um, manage? You know, another one that popped up when I read this list is uh, odor mitigation outdoor air quality you know there are jurisdictions that actually care about that as silly a thing as that sound um so whatever volatile sulfur are in the air just bug people you know yeah and then you know we talk about air leaving the space to try and be a good neighbor and not pissing them off from a whatever we want to call that volatile organic compound compounds escaping and near schools or whatever it might be. But then I think about the influx too. We talk about filtration of air coming into the space. Obviously we have closed loop integrated HVAC systems, but then oftentimes we need to supplement with additional air that comes in. Now, do you use a MERV 8 filter, a MERV 11 filter, or go up to a MERV 13 to get down to one micron to prevent pollen? What if there's an outdoor field crop near you that's running a seed crop or they have males going in the neighborhood? And you bring in all this pollen and you just go S1 on everything and you, you know, fertilize the whole crop. And now it's not sellable and you've ruined your flowers just because you needed to bring in an additional 5% lower RH or augment the airflow in order to evacuate the CO2, which is another compliance thing, right? Like thinking about all the things that are tied together. Um, sometimes we don't think about them until we screw them up and they cost us financially. I've got a great story of a client uh, when I was with the MSO and we were doing advising who was opening and they're a big well-known cultivator. They were one of the first operators in uh, Nevada to produce a crop um, controlled environment indoor, but they were next to a dairy farm or some sort of cow situation. And so uh, everything kept coming up, testing hot, you know, harvests and harvests and harvests. And, uh, you know, those types of things you really got to consider. They say hemp pollen by itself can drift up to six kilometers, something like that, right? Um, so you could have a hemp farm six miles, six kilometers away, and you're throwing bananas in flour and just pulling out your hair because you're not built, you, you're not, you know, cognizant enough you to filter out it. the pollen, right? Yeah. That, that would bug me all day and it happens mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. And I also think about, you know, I think there's one in here towards the end where they're talking about record keeping. And I always think record keeping is critical, right? It's what I did as a cultivator. It helped me really evolve. But then I think of range versus resolution and the granular data that you can collect, right? Not just record keeping, but accurate record keeping, mm -hmm. collecting accurate information from your cultivation facility. So you can continually improve, like what is your sensor accuracy? What's your sensor density? What's really going on in the space so you know what changes you need to make or what financial investments you should make to better your cultivation facility? So within the compliance rules, sometimes they're leading us to a solution. 
We just need to embrace it wholeheartedly and use the tools of compliance in order to better ourselves as cultivators, better ourselves as business people, and better ourselves in how we serve the environment, right? Like I think about compliance too, when we talk about water activity and moisture content in the product you get. I've had friends come up to me and say, hey, dude, I've got this weed that's testing at 44% THC. And I'll see the test result and I'll say, yeah, but you're at 3% moisture content. I don't want to smoke this dusty stuff, man. This is a waste of my time. I want to smoke stuff that's cannabis cup winning 12% moisture content. And that takes that same product back to like 33%, which is still mind-blowingly high. I was so proud of myself the first time I tested at 28%. But the point being is that like understanding the granular data, not just helps you be a better cultivator, it helps you be a better decision maker when you're a consumer and understanding what's impacting the THC or the terpene numbers or the product shelf life, or like you said, the safety of that product as you consume it. Maybe it tested safe, but the water activity was above 0.6 and all of a sudden it's growing mold, you know, months later. Yeah. Yeah. That. You know, for states that haven't taken a rational regulatory scheme and applied it and applied unfair uh, COA levels and, you know, micro print, like all that stuff, like it, it just, it does not benefit the end consumer. Right. And I, and I know where the lobbying is coming from behind it to keep it as vanilla as possible because the industry doesn't want to have to pay for a 16 terpene test or some, something like that, plus heavy metal, right? And pesticides. But, but at the same time, like if you want to get that 5% plus on terps, you really do need to test for all 16 and then you expose yourself to all these other potential fail points as well. So it's a delicate balance of risk and reward, right? It's a yeah. fun game to think about when you really mm -hmm. dive into it. This episode of Ask the Growbot is brought to you by... Room Generator 2.0, available on GrowGlide's website, RoomGen 2.0 allows you to create 3D renderings for up to 10 unique room designs and includes options like AirGlide and your favorite lighting fixtures. When finished, you also receive a personalized ROI report that illustrates the financial performance of your investment. Check it out for free at GrowGlide.com and take your facility design to new heights. So I'm going to ask a follow-up questions about what states are most advanced when it comes to clear regulations. Oregon and Washington. <laughs> Let's see what it says. Colorado. Colorado. California. California. Oregon. Oregon. All right. So we they went with the first Massachusetts, four and then Mass. Yeah. Um, would you guys concur with that? Agree with that? Wow. I would say... Common consensus are these, you know, Oregon and Washington were some of the first to legalize and first to act. And it was the wake up call to the industry that you can't just spray whatever you want. There were cultivators I knew that would hire chemists early on and say, hey, I'm going to bring in this chemical advisor to talk about the health, the half-life of something like Forbid. So I can spray it in this micro dose in week one or week two of veg and then if i extend the veg out by another five weeks and the flower times eight i'm gonna test clean and that worked for a while until we started doing mass outdoor crops and going through extraction and then we had that buildup of showing up in extraction and all of a sudden it tests clean as flour but not an extract so in a lot of ways uh washington and oregon helped us understand the nuances of testing and set rules and regulations for the next generation, you know, 
Colorado, California, Massachusetts. These are all pretty liberal states that are thinking a lot about consumer safety, um, which is why some of the rules and regulations are a little tougher there. Some people might argue unfair, but I think it's important to have a baseline. I mean, groups like ASTM and others are really trying to establish fair baselines for everyone to understand what the rules should be, what safety rules can be. And then after that, you can play within those parameters, but it's important to have that baseline minimum um, to ev so everyone's at least communicating the same way and driving towards the same goal. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. Everyone except Massachusetts has had decades of medical cannabis background, policy, experimentation, regulation, court law, um, all of the above and hard fought also. So um, I, I hope that those states, um, California, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington are showing up as having clear public policies with fair uh, licensing schemas and a fair balance between industry and consumer. Um, but I, you know, I still have some objections. I think there's some cl more clear, more successful regulatory schemes that haven't been lifted here. Illinois is kind of what I represent as the second uh, generation of legalization bills in that um, it really opened up patient protection or consumer protections. Uh, it allowed for greater input of minority controlled businesses. It um, removed uh, and allowed people to expunge uh, you know, nonviolent cannabis records, stuff like that. Um, and to me, like having a clear tax and, you know, sale model is important, but I think that only goes so far. We could talk about DC, actually. DC has a very interesting model where they actually legalized um, through initiative, but because their budget is overseen by Congress, uh, they aren't allowed to spend a penny to implement their tax and regulatory system. So um, essentially what they have is a decrim model uh, that is extremely functional um, and you know has really cleaned up a lot of the backlog in the court systems, as well as given law enforcement a very clear directive um, to leave people alone. So I, yeah, when I see these, I see, yeah, these are big, industry state um and right, right. the old um nonprofit organ grassroots organizer in me wants to say hey um there's still some things that we're forgetting yeah i think high level international eu gmp moving from country to country the export model but i'm getting this visceral response right because in 2004 as you know my mom got sick with cancer and we were growing our own weed. It was like, hey, let's grow some pot. Maybe it'll help. Who knows anything about medicine? But we got a medical card and the doctor's like, hey, outside of chemotherapy, this might be a viable option. And we went to a local dispensary. I mean, I was in the middle of nowhere in the desert. So it is what it is. And we bought and ate the weed to smoke for my mom's lung cancer. Okay, a lot of mistakes and red flags there. But then we take it home and we break it up and it has mold in it. And that was the moment that I realized there needs to be some sort of regulatory body, at least guiding 
the consumer safety. And what I think about now is people complain about stringent tests and I understand where they're coming from. It makes the market really challenging, but there's the medical market where safety isn't an option. It's a necessity. So we don't actually kill people that are sick. There's the recreational market where it's legal, but people are just trying to consume recreationally and get high and enjoy an experience and free their mind and whatever it might be. And I support that. And then there's the black market where we both know some of the best weed in the world never makes it to the controlled environment because of the taxes and other regulatory bodies prevent that from being profitable. It might cost them a thousand dollars to produce a pound. And as a result, they can't really make any money unless they sell it in the black market. Counter to that though, there's a bunch of garbage in the black market. So when you go buy weed from your homie, you might not know if it's great weed, some of the best weed you'll ever smoke, better stuff than wins cannabis cups, or poison that will kill you. Yep. And you roll those so, dice. For 40 bucks an eighth, you roll the dice all day when you have to go to the dispensary and pay 85. God, when I think about all the swaggy brick I smoked in high school, I'm surprised <laughs> I'm not dead already, right? Yeah, you built the immunity like I did, man. You just <laughs> consume enough of the bad stuff. It's like snake venom. <laughs> Although I still swear I can open a bag and I'm like, I can smell the Eagle 20, you know, like. Oh, yeah. It's Mike Lowe all day. <laughs> all right, guys, let's um, let's try to stump this thing. Let's try to ask a, a very specific question that you guys are both very knowledgeable about and see what it can, um, what the reply is. You guys can think of something. What are the legal loopholes to break compliance and still be profitable in the cannabis industry? Right. Like, I feel like there's loopholes. There's a lack of enforcement. Right, there's see. a lack of oversight sometimes. Ah. Yeah. I know ah. you're just going to run away from this. You softy. Inappropriate. It's not appropriate. There are none. Illegal <laughs> loopholes. Okay. Yeah. Sure you guys uh, got so, about that. And, and, and yeah. that's part of the industry, right? Is that when we talk, what happens when someone fails a test? What happens when you grow mold and mildew? What happens when an ignorant outside employee brings in a banned substance and applies it because their job is tied to productivity? I've seen these things happen. And there are certain options for remediation where that yep. product can go through and be cleaned and still be safe to the consumer marketplace. Mm-hmm. And then there's other times where it can't and it goes to a burner distro or it goes out the back door or somehow that product still needs to be sold because it's so challenging to be profitable in the cannabis industry without effective ways to run a business like a business. And I think that's what we're really trying to unpack here is that we're all for compliance and rules and regulations, but let's be fair, right? Let's let us write off some of the cogs. Let's let us run this like a business. Let's use the tax you know, situation to our advantage, pay taxes, but get umbrellas and benefits. Uh, when we don't, it encourages legal entities to find loopholes and break the law. Ones that ChatGPT doesn't even know about. <laughs> yeah, I think, um... I think the Canadian markets are an interesting, there's going to be a great case study on this because- Cannabis 2.0, right? Yeah. First off, they over anticipated the demand in the market and had massive overbuild. 
um, they correctly required CGMP uh, compliance, which effectively meant there was a very narrow IPM strategy. And you could not touch those plants with anything, with anything in flower. You can't even foliar spray because you're not going to pass myco in flower. So, you know, what then happened was massive, massive biomass of hot material that had to be remediated. And a lot of the flower in Canada, instead of going through extraction, uh, actually went to like a radiation booth and was irradiated as a way to remediate that stuff. So, um, you know, CGMP is going to be incredibly important for international markets, for interstate uh, commerce, for for all of these things. Um, but we also need to be aware that it is very difficult to produce solid cannabis in under those constraints. And we can see the same with Bedrocan in the EU having, you know, some very interesting issues with quality. Um, I digress. No, I think that's, it's interesting too, because I think about, you know, what we're testing for and why we're testing for it. And I'm all about it, right? Like my mom had cancer. I don't want her to smoke microbes and get sick or get that shit in her lungs. I don't fully understand it, but I don't want that. But then I was also a guy who owned a hydro shop and made ferments and brewed compost teas. And people would come into my shop and say, is this safe? And I would pull out a cup of tea and I would take a sip right in front of them. I would stick my finger in a ferment of a variety of different things, horsetail, nettle, all this stuff, and lick it. And it would be sweet and would be syrupy and it would be delicious. And if you diluted it, it would kill bugs. It would destroy fungal colonies. It would clean the roots in a beneficial way. However, there are yeast spores in there. And what I found is that in supplying some recipes or teaching people how to brew tea, they would apply it to commercial scale. In week four of flour, they would apply these wonderful beneficial compost teas that they could spray all over their face and it would be good for their skin. And then they would go through the process of drying and curing and then it would show up as a yeast or a mold that's fully beneficial that people consume on a daily basis and it's good for them, but it would test hot. And that product would have to be destroyed. So there's a little bit of a disconnect of what are we testing for and why are we testing for it? And let's make sure that we know exactly what the thresholds are, which yeasts and which molds. But now your test goes from 25 to 125 to $550 per batch. Uh And when the profit margins are as thin as they are, now you're talking about the cost of production going up by $25 a pound. And we've talked about this, right? If your neighbor produces for $500 a pound and you produce for $600 a pound, and now the testing makes them 600 and you 700, they're just going to sell at 650 until you go out of business and become a distressed asset. I don't think it's fair and effective. And one person might be spraying something at a half-life that allows them to pass the test while the other person's brewing compost tea. One's better for the world and one's not. And how do we get to an enforcement level where we educate the enforcers that the people carrying out the consequences for these rules understand the why and not just the test itself? Boy, you said a lot right there. Well, for the future. Can we ask it, ChatGPT, another question? Ask it something that has to do with racking and compliance, right? All right. 
We talk about anti-tip tracks. We talk about mobile aisles. We talk about being able to turn around things in the front working space. What is it that's so that what cultivators should be thinking about when it comes to vertical multi-tiered cultivation and cannabis and compliance, specifically those two things? I know what we talk about, right? Supply return configurations to make sure that we get laminar airflow and actually move the air through the space so we don't get dead spaces and eddies. Anti-tip tracks when we get to a certain height, mobile aisle of at least 36 inches for ADA compliance. What does ChatGPT think is so important? Structural safety. I mean, Structural that's got to be one. your number one. People don't realize when they're putting these uh, vertical racks into their space, but they become the skeletal foundation for your cultivation in that room, right? Uh, so you need something that is going to stand up to the structural and seismic requirements of the job and the jurisdiction that you're in. You have to be really wary about that. Uh, so that's, you know, one thing that we've always done is have all our seismic calcs ready to go. Uh, we always internally check our structural stuff. And because I can't sleep well just on us checking out our internal stuff, I send it out to some nerd with a, uh, you know, a professional engineering stamp to go do it for me so I can sleep better. Um, this stuff is and really important. Nerds, we nerd out on soil stuff all the time. We were just talking about teas and microbes and we worked on multiple projects just I want to say in the last two weeks where we're exploring the weight limitations of living beds and soils and can we actually hold this up without the racks bowing and what we've come to the conclusion is it takes a lot of thought policing we've had to pull in our engineering teams and really run sims and go out and build these things in the real world and learn from our mistakes to get better and i'm not going to call out other racking companies but i've seen other ones fail and I think it's important to really think about how we've gotten here from a structural safety perspective, right? And because I nerd out with soil guys all the time, I, I wanna tell them, hey, I don't have the answer right now because I need to know how deep your beds are, how wide your beds are. Are you gonna put gravel in the bottom? Are you gonna put pith in the bottom? Like, how are we gonna build these beds so we can truly estimate what the weight's gonna be once it's wet so we can still move it? So it doesn't bow, so it doesn't break. So you don't have to shut down production in week four and lose an entire crop, which could be worth a million dollars at scale. Or even worse, three or four cycles in on your four by eight no-till bed and all of a sudden it just spills everywhere. And you're... <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I mean, people uh, don't realize how heavy media is and soil at field capacity is heavy you know it really is so when we're talking about even a trash bag full of wet rock wool man you know i can't even sling two of them over my back yep yep um and folks just don't consider these things it's like it's it's wild to me but um you know that's why we're here to take that stuff seriously because it does matter it matters for all your safety it matters for our ability to sleep at night and sell a product that we can stand behind. And um, that goes a long way. Yeah, and I think electrical safety, we talk about effectiveness of being able to get the wires and the racks, fire safety. We touched on that a little bit when we were talking about flu space and being able to put fire dampers and suppression systems in place. Hazardous materials, GPT missed the mark a little bit on that one. Like mm -hmm. we're not really talking about storing hazardous materials, although a lot of nutrients can become hazardous and we should think mm -hmm. about that. 
to me, the access, the egress, the ability to actually utilize these racks, right? You think about not just ADA access, but day-to-day access. And we talk about double wide grow decks so you can actually get up there and work back to back with people, making sure that it can hold the weight load safety safely, that you can harvest crops while you're up on the second tier, that you can effectively run your business with these racking structures in there, knowing that you have enough usable space while at the same time pushing the envelope on room utilization, cubic room utilization, because you know that's the thing that allows you pr- to produce at sub $400 a pound and makes your neighbor produce at $600 a pound, making that person the distressed asset. So those deci- decisions you make in facility design are really important, um, but you got to live with them after you make them. Mm-hmm. And that's always the rub is like, as a cultivator and someone with dirt under my fingernails, I want to get you every square inch out of that room, cubic inch, not just square inch, cubic inch of canopy out of that room. Right. So, but I'm also my other foot's in compliance. So, you know, I, I can't tell you how many room, how many, like actual facilities I've built where we had maybe 12 inches in between roll top benches. And that was a lot of space back then, 10, 15 years ago. Right. And now I won't build you a room unless it has at least three feet of mobile aisle wide and, you know, at least three feet of front space. And, you know, sometimes we still get the cultivator that want to push that too. And that's okay. Uh, Cause I feel them, but um yeah, access and egress, I think inspectors, there used to be a day where, say the early days of Prop 215 back in California or early Michigan days when you were trying to get a certificate of occupancy and you're just ready to go and start that facility and the fire marshal or the electrician, the electrical uh, inspector comes through and they pop their head and then they go, oh, I don't want to deal with this. And they sign off and they walk away. Well, those days are gone, let me tell you right? Everybody is professionalized a little bit more. The states realize they can make money on this as a regulatory scheme. Um, And the entire process is just more professional than it was. So um, access, egress, ADA, um, OSHA compliance, I can't speak enough to these things. They are important. Yeah, so I appreciate everyone joining us for our talk on compliance here. The Growbot did a great job giving us some jumping off points. It missed the mark a little bit, but also inspired some really good conversation and pulled out some anecdotal stories that showed that we've been down the road of failure and we felt success as well. At the same time, we were able to sprinkle in some of what we do, right? Which is provide solutions in the cultivation space with multi-tier racking and augmented airflow. I think we've all, you know, contributed what we could here and we could stay on for another two hours and keep it going. But reality is hopefully some people can find this useful. They can reach out to us and we can have deeper dives and more talks about vertical racking um, and the solutions at GrowGlide and why we're trying not to lose our jobs to robots, but I don't think robots are gonna grow weed for us. So in the end, still gonna rely on people's shoulders and we're, we're trying to prop those people up and make sure they're successful.